This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. This is the Book Riot Podcast. This is episode 359, because there was just one a couple days ago. I think. Anyway, I think it's 359. I'm updating on the fly. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky, recording on Thursday, March 5th, 2020. Rebecca, welcome back to the show. Hello. Thank you. Yeah. Um, a lot of interesting uh, big news this week on the Barnes & Noble Big Five publisher side. Um, we've got some follow-up to do. I saw today, it, and you said you're going to watch it, Oprah's two-part American Dirt Apology tour feelings extravaganza. I might. It looks so awkward to me. I can't even talk about it without (laughs) my shoulders bunching up. Right. Yeah. Okay. So it's Thursday afternoon right now, and the thing I'm telling myself is like, some point this weekend, I will crack open a beer and sit down and see exactly how awkward it is because I just kind of want to know. But I do have the feeling that if I succeed in doing this, which I completely might just decide it's not worth it. But if I do it, I'm going to be watching it like with my fingers over my face, just cringing the whole time. I can't even really put together a mental model of what a good outcome of this is. Like what, how could it go that I'm like, you know what, I'm glad they did this. I'm having a hard time figuring that Mm. out. Do you have a sense of like, what could make this not okay, but like productive? I'm just not sure. I think I feel like if anybody could set the stage for there to be a conversation, like an an open conversation about it or to set um, Janine Cummins up to talk about this like transparently and honestly and acknowledge some of the things that she should acknowledge it's either Oprah or Barbara Walters. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm curious about that. I think it's this is truly a like a case of I just kind of want to know if it gets set up and does Cummins like acknowledge things or does she continue to paper over it? I don't know to what degree like the publisher is controlling or not what she's allowed to say about mm. it or what they've advised her to say or to not say about like the the perceived harm done by the book and then by the hubbub around the book and all of the other stuff. But I feel like Oprah is going to acknowledge it in some fashion. Like it would be very, <laughs> you know, she'd have to. It would be very un-Oprah to just ignore the elephant in the room. So I'm curious about how fully will they describe the elephant? And then will Janine Cummins acknowledge that the elephant is there and talk about it? Or will she be like, yes, that was weird and rough. And now let me publicize my Yeah, I guess, I I guess what I, to use the elephant in the room, I feel like the elephant is the room in this situation. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you, it had, in my mind, it kind of has to be the, the the spoke uh, the wheel around all the spokes of whatever yeah, they're gonna, I think you're going right. to do have to turn. I mean, Oprah does have some precedent for reckoning with a troubling choice. You know, James Frey's Million Little Pieces. Um, and I don't remember all the timeline and what happened, but I think she picked it as in one of the kind of OG Oprah book club when it was really at the peak of its powers picks, and then mm-hmm. had him back on after basically it was all turned out to be a fabrication that it wasn't a memoir and blah, blah, blah. And my memory of that now is that she handled that with some, 
you know, a, a low level, as much as there can be righteous indignation on daytime talk shows, she, she kind of mustered that. Yeah. Um, but in and, this, I don't really have a good sense of what that looks like for this one. Right. I think that in that case, like everybody, including James Frey, knew that that was 100% an apology tour. Yes. Like, he owed Oprah an apology, and he was lucky that she was as nice about it as she was. Right. <laughs> but that's not what this um, is tomorrow, right? I don't think that's I don't, what this is. No, I don't think so. But I think the thing that I want it to be is Oprah being like, look, I read your book without knowing any of the backstory. I found the book to be powerful. Here's where I was coming from. Here's what I have learned in the meantime. And it's like, I learned a lot. I want to hear Oprah say like, I learned a lot from the way that people responded to my selection of your book for this. And let's talk about that. Like, I want to hear Oprah acknowledge it. And then I want to hear Janine Cummins like wrestle with some of it. Mm -hmm. And... I think maybe I think it's very likely that I'm holding out hope for something that isn't going to happen. But if there ever were a place that an author who had been reticent to fully own up to something could go and own up in a safe container, it's with Oprah. Yeah, because in order for it to do work for Cummins and Oprah, frankly, I think Oprah's lost a lot of goodwill among a significant portion of the people that look to her as you know, one of the very few people in the wider world that has juice around moving books um, to pick the book and then to, she hasn't doubled down on it. I guess we won't find out until tomorrow, but then to continue giving it the shine that Oprah Mm -hmm. can comport short of having to be an apology to her. I'm not sure those kinds of people are going to be super happy. And I I find myself wondering if I'm one of them, to be quite honest. Yeah, I think that that's also something that one of the reasons that I want to watch this is I think that it will be an indication of where Oprah's priority and care Mm -hmm. lay at this point. Like Because there are a lot of different ways that she could present this information. And if she acknowledges that like without realizing it, she participated in doing harm and has publicized this book that has some major issues and then didn't back down from selecting it. So here we are talking about it. Like if she can own up to her part of it, that will go away to renew some of my trust in Oprah. And it will indicate to me that she's trying to repair trust with her audience. If Mm. she doesn't go there, I think it's a, that's also an implicit indication of where she cares or doesn't care about Mm -hmm. repairing damage or what she's woke to or not in this moment. Um, And then like, I'm kind of much less interested in what Janine Cummins does or doesn't do, because I think the story of uninterested. Yeah. Like the story of American dirt is basically already over. Like Mm -hmm. they, you know, the publisher did not really acknowledge much until very late in the game. She didn't acknowledge much until very late in the game. They rode the initial publicity wave into bestseller status. And I don't think it's going to end up being one of the best selling books of the year. It's not going to end up like the halo around it or the negative halo. It's a black mm. hole. <laughs> what is a negative I doubt it'll halo? be made into a movie. I mean, would yeah, you want like, to touch that with a 10 foot right, pole right it's, now? Nobody's going to be putting it on best books of 2020 lists no. because who wants to be on the hook for that? So like <laughs> no. the long tail, I don't want those reader emails <laughs> like the long tail of American dirt is very it's a very short long tail and that story is going to be almost over so I'm like I'm not worried about American dirt in the big legacy of publishing but there's a way that Cummins as a person could repair some wrongs Oprah with the use of her platform and the way that she chose to use it for this book and then didn't back down when she received the information and criticism about it that she did like the thing I hope is that she was like well let's keep it going and then I can use this as a way to talk about it and hopefully repair some trust but who who knows 
uh, that you say that only Barbara Walters and Oprah could maybe couch this in a way that would be, I don't know, thread the, uh, thread the needle of accusatory is wrong, but investigative and allow for growth mm-hmm. and, you know, and, some sort of yeah. reconciliation. I want what I, I feel. I just realized what I want is Barbara Walters interviewing Oprah about this whole situation. Don't don't give me anything else. Don't give me Cummings. Don't get just that conversation. Yeah, this watch, like late that. stage David Letterman that we have now yeah. <laughs> interviewing Oprah about. Nah, this I don't trust is... him with this topic. He's no? he's not plugged in. I mean, mm. I'd watch him interview Oprah just for sport. Yeah. But like about this topic, do you think he, maybe he not? I think he could get. This? Well, I don't. I don't know stuff. if he would get. I don't know if he could care. But I think if he got up to speed about this he could conduct a very interesting interview with it and that he now, like the new version of David Letterman that we have in this Netflix series set, does set the stage for these kinds of conversations with people. Um, so that the, the Letterman be... you went out of that is the one that really doesn't care if the, the question is awkward. Like that's the thing yeah, in that 100%. situation. He just is like, I would... He may not ask an interesting question, but he certainly won't care if the question he's ask, asking yeah. someone makes them uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what I'm wanting here. But yeah. you're right. Like Barbara Walters interviewing Oprah about this is 100% the thing that I want. I'm much more interested in what Oprah is mm-hmm. going to do because she has so much historical power and influence about books that people read. So I think that really matters in the big scheme of things in terms of having a platform and using the platform more than the specific individual yeah. story of American Dirt Matters. And just the TikTok of how she decided to, you know, pick it when she found out about the controversy, mm-hmm. what her feelings were, you know, what kind of internal deliberations did she have in her head with her team, with other people about what to do. I think that's, as like you said, American Dirt, the book itself is now completely uninteresting to me um, as a work outside of how it's affected other people. And this is the biggest showcase for that. And I'd love to hear Oprah talk about process there because we've seen other like other reviewers. There was a great Twitter thread from a reviewer for I don't remember the publication, so I don't want to guess right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but who talked about how like he wrote a review and felt duped because the publicity material that came with the book talked about how Cummins had personal experience with a story like this because her husband was an undocumented immigrant and mm-hmm. it neglected to mention that he is from Ireland, Ireland. and yeah. she's talking about. Mexican immigrants. Um, and that's a that's an important difference. Did Oprah receive a galley with the same publicity copy? Was that the framing that she was given going into her reading of the book and then deciding that it was... And it must have been some human PR person pitching her. I doubt Oprah mm-hmm. opens her unsolicited book mail and reads the manus- the, the PR right, or, printouts or and says, somebody, you know what? Yeah, we or got somebody, ourselves yeah. an Oprah pick. Right. Or somebody on her team read the galley that had an insert with some kind of summary and decided that it was worth passing up Mm. to her. So I would I'm very curious about what the pipeline to Oprah was there. Yeah. All right. Let's do a sponsor. And I've got follow up. Believe it or not, that was supposed to be a bit of a one off. but That was interesting. (laughs) All right. Let's do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 
and she's like the best she's brilliant charismatic quick-witted funny they fall in love but the thing is she's number six so if he is to have seven great loves does that mean his time with Elena is going to come to an end so this is a love letter to western pop culture eastern traditions and being a first generation new yorker make sure to check it out and thanks again to flat iron books publisher of 888 love and the divine burden of numbers by abraham chang for sponsoring this episode <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. Okay, follow-up. Uh, this is reader email, so Rebecca, you're not at all prepared for this, but you'll find it interesting. The first Great. one, Overdrive, sent out, um, I got this too a little bit later, but one of our readers, um, or excuse me, one of our listeners wrote in and said, there are no more automatic checkouts at all. It used to be you could opt to have your holds automatically checked out. You had mm. to opt in to have them automatically checked out. Now you can no longer do that. You, you have to manually borrow your holds once you check them out. So it's part of a whole new system, I guess. I don't know. It'd be interesting to know if this is a direct response to some of the conversations coming out of Macmillan. We talked about stuff like this, about how sometimes if you're using Libby or, Libby or Overdrive, you'll just check stuff out, not knowing it's checked out, not really wanting to check it out. You won't actually read it. You'll return it when it expires. And that counts against the quota or the license or whatever. So there was just sort of mindless consumption happening because of the process in which overdrive allowed some people to automatically check it out there's a process where you have to go through it you have a three-day window to pick it up if not they return it blah 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 but it's no longer automatic checkout i think this is ultimately good i mean it was nice from a user's point of view to have it automatically checked out but the two consequences one is sometimes you didn't know it was automatically checked out and a clock on your um, borrowing window was ticking you're like oh you open up libby's oh i have one day to read this 700 page book huh not gonna Mm. do that (laughs) so not only do i have to go back to the end of the holds list but then the library uses up one of their chits, you know, assuming it's one of those kind of metered books, which most of them are. Um, so this, I think, will save libraries money, I think, ultimately, is what this is, is, is trying mm-hmm. to do. So, Charlotte, um, thank you for writing in on that really interesting email, too, from Stephanie um, in Oklahoma, who wanted to thank us for talking about the Tulsa massacre being added to the Oklahoma curriculum. Fine, just interesting news. Um, but she, want, she also wanted to say that something we didn't talk about, I didn't know about, is that another piece that's important is not only is it being added to curriculum, but the language is from a race riot to a race massacre, ah, which seems good. to be very useful and meaningful of a distinction there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been, she says it's been called the race riot till just a few years ago. And 
that's one of those naming things that matters a huge uh, oh, matters a, a huge amount because when we think of race rights we think of like just the way we think about America and race and how bad and, and you know racist we are it's like the people we think of having a race are the ones rioting right because white people mm-hmm. are the regular ones so it must be the non-white people doing the rioting well actually this was killing a bunch of black people so that seems to me a very useful change and she also wanted to shout out um, that Definitely Watchmen and Lindelhoff and the showrunners there have brought attention to the race massacre. But she did want to say probably the reason they know about it is there's been people advocating over time to remember this, right? Mm. The Greenwood Cultural Center, she she, um, she shouts out specifically about the, the race massacre and the you know history of African-American people in Tulsa and Oklahoma at large. So I, I thought that was well worth a shout on the show. So Goodwood Greenwood Cultural Center and all those people who've kept the memory alive and advocated for including in curriculum, but also getting the language right about what actually happened. Um, so it's not lost to time um, and putting it into a position where, you know, it can get picked up by a mainstream pop culture outlet who can treat it with sophistication responsibly. Other people respond to. Um, so Stephanie, thank you for writing in and let us know about that. Cool. cool. I'm not sure there's anything else to say. Except no, cool. that's all great stuff. Yeah. And thank you, Stephanie. The big news of the week. Uh, We've been waiting for one of these shoes to drop, I think, for a while. Ever since the PRH thing happened, there was other thinking that there could be a further consolidation in the publishing industry as it's very top-heavy, and news came this week, and it looks like an industry insider. It's not exactly what the you know corporate acquisition strategy happening here is, um, but Viacom CBS is looking to sell Simon & Schuster, which is the fourth... Largest publisher, he said, with an audible question mark <laughs> in his voice, I think. It goes PRH, HarperCollins, and then Hachette and Simon Schuster. I'm not sure which one. Um, they're pretty close, I think, after that. We'll get to talk about Hachette in a minute for, for fun reasons. Um, I'm not sure there's anything else to say. Asking price looks to be about $1.2 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why CBS would do this. I think CBS owns a whole bunch of media properties. But I'm not sure publishing industry, the publishing industry writ large, they want to compete. They own HBO. They own a million different things. Um, I'm not sure they want the publishing unit on their balance sheet to think about, frankly, just from a corporate level. They're looking to be a multimedia streaming service, HBO mm-hmm. Max, Empire. And this probably is just a headache for them at this point. And they can get some money for it to use it for other things. I would guess the only real kind of bidder would be a Hachette or um, a HarperCollins for this. I don't think yeah. the FCC would allow PRH to do it. Everyone else is too small. That's kind of what I think, Rebecca. Yeah, I, I think that's correct. And it's also what we have, what appear to be leaks about. And there's a Wall Street Journal piece that came out this morning that um, has an unknown source saying that HarperCollins is a potential bidder because um, Brian Murray, who is uh, chief executive of HarperCollins, had said in a previous interview Ah. that HarperCollins is interested in gaining scale through organic growth and acquisitions of other companies. And any time a publishing company is on the market, we'd like to take a look. And Mm -hmm. another executive who asked not to be identified, which that's for sure code for is a leak (laughs) from inside the company, Mm -hmm. said that um, Lagardere, which owns Hachette Book Group, um, is also so expressing interest or is likely to express interest. So I think those are the those are the two likely contenders. I think it would be very unlikely for somebody outside publishing to be wanting to 
purchase a publisher at this point. It's a tough game <laughs> right now. Um, and so doing it to grow market share and like, you know, sort of sync up consolidation um, would be the move like to try to stand against PRH really or compete with PRH in a more meaningful way to to gain more of the market share. I don't think that there's any likelihood that like Amazon is going to try to buy Simon and Schuster. I don't think that that's... that was the only other one. I was like, who else would think about it? Um, I don't know. We've talked about this before that Amazon has not made great inroads in getting independent bookstores and other bookstores to carry print versions of Amazon mm-hmm. titles. Could well, they it- use this as a not even a, tro- a Trojan battering ram <laughs> to say you're going to carry you're going to carry Stephen King right? I mean, just to name yeah, one Simon you know, Schuster author. The, I mean, I just think the resistance inside publishing houses to can't, yeah, overt yeah. partnership with Amazon that way or to selling to Amazon is so huge. Like, does does Viacom care though if they get a check for two bill? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah. it's just to I mean to fully lay it out. Something you and I were talking about, like two hours ago mm-hmm. um is that or maybe it was yesterday it doesn't matter to our listeners uh, <laughs> when we were doing this um but when when we talk about when we talk with publishers about how they run advertising um we hear consistently that one thing that publishers do when they're advertising a book is direct the like landing page link from banner ads to that book to say like harpercollins.com slash url for this title um because then they can link to a, a multiple sources where you can buy that book. And so that would include usually like you can buy it straight from the publisher or you can buy it from Amazon or Barnes and Noble or IndieBound or probably now bookshop.org or Kobo or like click through a bunch of places. And they do that not because it's effective. It's actually much less effective than directing a person to a one like to a one click purchasing situation they do mm-hmm. it because they don't want to show preference and they especially don't want to upset independent booksellers by linking say directly to Amazon and they value that those relationships with independent booksellers and like the power of hand selling and influence um and sort of like boots on the ground ability to get books into people's hands that independent booksellers have, that's really valuable to publishers in a way that I think they make space for it disproportionately, or they do it knowing that they're losing sales by including these multiple links. And like, if they're not going to link directly to Amazon to try to sell a book because they don't want to upset their relationships with independent booksellers, I don't think they're going to be super willing to look at selling the entire company but if, but because they, I guess I was like, does CBS care? They're just looking they're, the on the future of the business is not their concern. Yeah, that's like, true. And CBS probably doesn't care because first don't. of all, after they sell, they're gone. Yeah. Um, and then Amazon doesn't particularly care if independent booksellers, which are like three percent, four percent of the market, like if if let's just say Amazon buys Simon and Schuster. And bookseller and independent booksellers just decide not to stock Simon and Schuster mm-hmm. titles after that. Okay, so Simon and Schuster has lost the percentage of sales that those independent booksellers make. I don't think Amazon would care about that, but I also don't think this is a scenario we're ever going to see. No, I mean I could see <laughs> if Amazon was really like, you know what? Gosh darn it, we haven't made inroads into our print book sales outside of our own store. Assuming that's something they want to do, this would be a a um, throw your weight around. Oh yeah, you don't want to carry our books. Try not carrying mm-hmm. Stephen. Try try not carrying where the crowd. I think that's a Simon Schuster title. I can't think of it right now. Um, but I think this is this is Harper Collins to yeah. me. Uh, News Corp. Um, say what you will about News Corp. They have a lot of money, <laughs> and <laughs> th- it would make a lot of sense. Harper Collins, I think, has done fairly well of late. 
their their results have been pretty good. I follow this kind of a little bit, um, though not enough to know right at the top of my head what their margins and and growth rate have been like. But Harper Collins and Simon and Schuster, you now that together you have much more of a challenger to PRH. Mm-hmm. You're not. I don't even think they'd be half still, but they'd be a meaningful percentage. And you get the you get the weight to deal with Amazon and all the other partners you have to deal with. I wonder if you're Hachette, then you're worried. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I would guess that Simon and Schuster might benefit from a bit of a Hachette and Harper Collins, um, anxiety bidding war. Like yeah. If we're not going to get them, who are we going to get McMillan? Mm-hmm. Like who's next? Yeah. Uh, I think that's on the list. A really interesting question. I was just thinking, um, yesterday when this news first broke about how it's been like six years, I think since the yes. PRH merger, maybe, almost seven years. It happened in 2013. And it like from our side, it feels like very little has changed. I'm sure that on the inside, like as positions have been moved around and redundancies have been eliminated and people let go that it might feel different. But I would love like this feels like it's been long enough to know what difference it made. I would love for somebody who has that full lens. Um, Like maybe this is a PW job. Can someone at Publishers Weekly please do a look back at like what impact this had? Because it felt at the time like it was really big news Mm. that Penguin and Random House were merging. And it's been long enough that it's just completely normal that it's PRH now and life doesn't feel very different under PRH as it than it did as Penguin and Random House separately. Um, at least I don't think it does in life and publishing. Um, I'd like to, but I'd like to see sort of a top level industry look at what ha- what's, what is different or did the bottom line change? What does it seem to have mattered to those mm-hmm. companies or sort of like if, if we could AB test the universe, where do we think we'd be right now <laughs> right. if Penguin and Random House hadn't merged? Well, how about this? Try this one on for size. If you woke up tomorrow and they said, you know what? Actually, we never did merge. It was just a logo. <laughs> Everything was the same. Would you be like, oh, no, how could you have done the things that you've done since then? I'd be like, oh, yeah, okay, well, that's right. weird, but weird flex, yeah. but okay. Right, um. like they, some offices moved around, yeah. people got let go, new people got hired, but there doesn't seem to have been a meaningful shift in strategy yeah. um, in any way. Um, yeah, hard to see some other buyer coming in. I me, I, I could. I, again, I don't know enough about the margins on publishing and how attractive it is as a financial business, just on its own. Strategically, it's hard to imagine someone else. Like, is Barnes and Noble's not going to buy a publishing house? Like, who's even is that? Rakuten is there? Are they interested? Yeah. Kobo, one of mm-hmm. those kinds of situations, might be interesting. I don't, think so. I don't think so. But those are the kinds of people that have some sort of strategic reason to do it and deep pockets, which is kind of yeah. what you need because you're not going to buy Simon Schuster. I don't think just as a cash generator, like. Is it? I don't think it's as enough of a business on its own to be like that's just a good investment. I don't care about books. Yeah, and nobody that's just out a good there is like. Cow. I want to get quick, get rich quick. So <laughs> right. I think I'm going to go buy a publisher. Yes, I'm going to go broke slowly, more likely <laughs> than getting rich quickly. So uh-huh. um, that's. I guess I would put if I had ten units of probability, I'd put about. I'd put five on Harper Collins, three on Hachette, and two on Wildcard. Just okay. others, others. That's how I do it. It'll be, I'm sure there will be more rumors and that will be very interesting to well, see. Well, think of what else. we did with Barnes and Noble. Jeez. <laughs> right. Oh, the, that one where. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of Barnes and Noble, they have <laughs> oh. a new strategy, which is exactly what we thought they might say. Right? Yep. Isn't that what the story <laughs> is? Tell me about this. <laughs> Barnes and Noble's new strategy is to act like an independent bookseller. Mm-hmm. Um which is what we thought. And also we thought that largely because that has been James Don's approach with uh, 
Waterstones. Yeah, not, there's not a huge surprise here. What this means, like, what does Barnes & Noble act like an independent bookseller means is that the, what the books and the products that are stocked in each store will vary more Mm -hmm. um, from one location to another than it currently does right now. And those items will be location dependent. What are people in that area reading? What are they interested in? What are they buying? What are they not? Um, There's always been a degree of this with Barnes & Noble, like, um, based on regional interests, you know, sales reps talking to Barnes and Noble, but like Barnes and Noble doesn't have an individual in each retail location who is the buyer in the way that Mm -hmm. each independent bookstore has somebody who is the buyer who goes through the catalog and determines like entirely what's in stock. Um, The way it happens in Barnes and Noble stores locally, or at least the way it happened when I was a bookseller, and I've heard this is still the case is like, you know, Barnes and Noble corporate buys a certain amount of new titles from the publisher. They distribute them to individual stores based on past sales history of similar titles. And then like if you walk into a Barnes and Noble and you ask for a book that's not in stock, they order it for you. That book develops a sales history then like you have established the sales history of that title in that store. If I walk in later and request the same book, now that book has two sales in its sales history. And as that accumulates, automatic systems, basically algorithms are like, hey, people in this location want this book, maybe you should keep it on hand. And someone does review those sort of generated suggestions regularly to order them in or to reject them and be like, oh, no, that was a one time thing. We don't actually need that. Um, This is an interesting, I think, continuation of that strategy, more looking at localized choices. And what I heard last week, um, I was at the Public Library Association uh, conference with our sales director, and we were meeting with publishers. And one thing that I heard in that meeting was that this is decentralizing the buying power Mm -hmm. inside Barnes and Noble away from like the chief corporate buyer who historically has had a lot of power to the degree that like, if she didn't like a cover of a book, she had the influence to get the cover changed, because if she didn't like the cover, she wasn't going to order a large minimum. Mm. Um, And the concern from the publisher side that I heard expressed there was if Barnes & Noble corporate is placing smaller starting orders, that affects the minimums that publishers are going to meet and the size of print runs that they can guarantee, um, where it'll be more of a wait and see game in some cases now to see if, if the local stores are going to stock a title. And I think that'll be really interesting. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that this is smart. Like there's a lot of guessing about what's going to sell currently. And if you look at, if you're doing more specific work about what has already sold in a location and what the interests are there, you can only put so many books in the building. So you might as well maximize the chance that each one has of selling. Yeah. It's uh, some interesting stats here. They said this, you know, co-op merchandising, large upfront sales, uh, Daunt, James Daunt, who's the mm-hmm. CEO and in charge of this, uh, as Rebecca said, is said like half of all new books return unsold to the publisher for Barnes mm-hmm. & Noble, which is a wild stat. Um, also, it's, it's, it feels kind of like what the well-intentioned book nerd has said Barnes & Noble should do for a while. And yeah. I think I'd, I'd throw us in a little uh-huh. bit or at least consider as <laughs> like, make it a bookstore. Don't make it a thing that has books that you are there for and then you then you buy CDs or expensive chocolate on the way out or a bunch of pens and notebooks and stuff make put the books forward have sidelines of course but make it a bookstore that people want to go into interesting here that their goal over the next couple of years maybe a little bit longer is to get to 1500 stores nationwide which put them at the peak in terms mm-hmm. of 
individual stores. Now the footprints of a lot of those will be smaller. Um, one I thought too is I, I don't know enough about if these are terms of art, but they said one thing they want to do is um, smaller locations in high-end shopping malls and on street corners in affluent neighborhoods where he says the brand would fit in well along other targets of middle-class spending like Aveda soaps and Peloton exercise bikes. Kind of an interesting formulation there mm-hmm. of middle-class spending and affluent neighborhood. Like it's confusing a little bit there. And then Aveda and Peloton. Again, I'm not sure what people mean by middle class. Are those middle? Do we th- are those middle class stores? Those seem expensive to me. I think those are expensive. A Peloton yeah. bike membership is like sixty bucks a month, maybe yeah. more. And it's like two grand up front. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. And Aveda soap, that's more expensive than like Bed Bath or not. Um, uh, what's Bath and Body Works? Oh yeah, Aveda is a yeah. That's it's a up market from that, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure. Maybe there was a confusion here, but like, is it middle class or is it affluent? Because I'll definitely take Aveda and Peloton as that's an affluent thing, but it doesn't feel to me like middle class. Yeah, I think... I don't know. I think we're talking upper middle class here, not... um, Like, we're not talking Mm -hmm. about U.S. household with the, like, median income. That's not... That's not a household that has a Peloton bike in it and a bunch of Aveda soap. But those are aspirational brands. And so, like, if you are in the average middle age, like middle age, the average, like, middle class shopper and you're treating yourself, maybe like maybe. an Aveda, you know, maybe like a nice Aveda shampoo feels like right. a treat in the same way that going into a bookstore and buying a hardcover book is a is a luxury like these are kind of luxury items and i think maybe that's the way that it gets phrased as like buying books is a luxury Mm. having a stationary bike in your house that you pay like 60 dollars a month to ride is a luxury Mm. um aveda soap is a luxury my yoga studio membership is a luxury Mm. like these are all things that go in in the same bucket together and barnes and noble positioning i think acknowledging that books are a luxury item is helpful and then positioning themselves along brands that do that same thing is also helpful then you are then you attract customers who are who are willing to and can pay for some luxury item in that capacity yeah to be ignoring the specific language but looking at the comps that sounds like the indigo strategy right yeah it does Uh, i was just thinking that Mm -hmm. um i I must have missed this little um biographical detail in all the James Don and his company is buying Barnes and Noble, but he had a degree in history. He has a degree in history from Cambridge, but have started out his career in investment banking. So a, a business person through mm-hmm. and through who began selling books after his wife advised him to pursue a more spiritually rewarding career than investment banking. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It is. It is. Um, well, there's that level of, I think the term Kelly, our coworker Kelly taught us of vocational awe. Yeah, for librarians books, and booksellers. Librarians yeah. and booksellers. And yeah. there's certainly that, that people, people aren't bookselling to get rich unless you're the guy who runs the hedge fund that buys the Well, Barnes Len Reggio, I think, got into books because he saw a business opportunity. I, I don't mm-hmm. know, but I'm not sure he was a great book lover. At least I haven't seen that yeah. uh, bandied about. But if you were hoping for someone with um, sort of a spiritual, the kind of spiritual profile you want for someone to mm. take over Barnes Noble Save It is a former investment banker that switched into selling books because he loved them. Like that's kind of what you're looking for. Well, I right. I mean, it, it sounds then like he has two intentions or um, possible intentions that are helpful yeah. to books. And one is run a successful business and the other is keep books alive. Yeah, right. Um, and those are both those are both things we want, I think, from the person running Barnes & Noble. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it looks good on paper. I guess that's what I'll say. It sounds good on paper. Um, 
Is this yeah, kind of tweaking enough to battle macroeconomic technological trends? Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. Like, I think we're overdue for some shifts in the economic setup of the publishing industry. Totally like, agree. The fact that you can return books that don't sell really distinguishes publishing from most other businesses. Wow. You know, like if a local boutique buys jeans from four brands and two of the brands don't sell, they don't get to return those. Oh. <laughs> yeah, Unsold, right. they have to discount them and eat it. If your restaurant um, orders a bunch of uh, <laughs> swordfish and it doesn't sell over the weekend, they're not selling right. it back. This is why Anthony Bourdain told us not to eat fish on Mondays. That's right. You That's know, right. like it's publishing is is just different in that way of like the, the product can be returned. The profit margins are super low. Like when you walk into an independent bookstore, the books have the lowest profit margin of anything in the store. And yeah. that's why like you're doing that bookseller uh, if you're trying to support your local bookseller, like buy books, but also like buy that journal and that pen and that candle that they're selling. The that's where they're yep. right. Like that's where they're making their money. And if anything is really going to shift in the setup of like keeping independent bookstores alive as minimum wages increase and as there's more pressure to provide health insurance mm -hmm. in small businesses, the only way that independent bookstores are going to be able to do that is if the business model of publishers changes in a way that supports the economics. And that would be deeper discounts mm -hmm. for wholesale and probably some adjustments to um, to how the return situation works. Like that'll be interesting. I noticed that you mentioned co-op and if you're new to the show or you don't know what co-op is, that's where publishers pay to have their titles featured on things like the big octagon table or the new release table or whatever in Barnes and Noble. Most of those are paid placements. Like whether fewer of those spaces become available because they're trying to focus on what's locally interesting and not just what publishers are trying to sell. Like I think that would be a reader service that would be profitable for Barnes and Noble to make, but I don't know how disruptive that would be to their relationships with publishers to be like, you're really pushing this book and you want it in a co-op space, but we don't think it's going to sell. What do you mm -hmm. do then? Yeah. All right, let's take another sponsor break. Come back in a minute. Today's episode is brought to you by Penguin Young Readers. So this book I'm about to tell you about is giving five worlds meets spirited away realness. It's about a girl finding her way back home after getting trapped in the spirit world. It follows Anzu, who has moved to a new town during Oban, a time for families to remember and celebrate their ancestors. And ever since her Albachan died, Oban has lost its magic. She doesn't feel much like celebrating anymore. So while avoiding holiday festivities, Anzu spots a stray dog down the street, a dog that seems to be staring right at her. So when she chases it, she slips and falls down a bridge, losing consciousness. And when she awakes, she's in the Shinto underworld known as Yomi. The stray dog, she finds out, is actually the gatekeeper of Yomi, and he warns her to return to the human realm before it's too late. Like I said, Miyazaki realness, um, I'm super excited for this. So make sure to pick up Anzu in the Realm of Darkness by Mai K. Nguyen. And thanks again to Penguin Young Readers for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eilin. 
Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shuei barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Okay. Um, in the left hand, in this week in left hand, not talking to the right. Um, I guess this came it's- out on Twitter. So Ronan Farrow... Who I, we, investigative journalist? I guess we yes. call him now for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, yes, um, that's author what he of is. Catch and Kill, um, who has been ankle knees, maybe waist deep in the Me Too movement, reporting deluge, um, revolution. Maybe even is fair. Um, who was published by Hachette? Announced on Twitter that he, well, basically taking Hachette to task because. Grand Central, another one of Hachette's imprints, was publishing the memoir of his father, Woody Allen, who um, Ronan Farrow's sister, Dylan Farrow, has accused over time of molesting her when she was a child. Ronan Farrow believes her and said and wrote you know, a letter to Hachette saying, you know, imagine, I can't believe you. Basically, you can read the whole thing, but I mm-hmm. can't believe you did this. Your policy of editorial independence among your imprints does not relieve you of your moral and professional obligations as the publishers of Catch and Kill. Um, he said the book wasn't part about Woody Allen, what happened there. He said, obviously, I can't in good conscience work with you anymore. Imagine if this were your sister, body blow, headshot, and it's over. I'm not sure what else there is to say about this, frankly. I mean, it's like, Woody Allen's memoir. I understand there's juice and he's a, for better I mean, or worse, like Titanic figure and someone I used to really like the movies of, but I don't watch anymore. But a hugely, pro- I, it's so wild that Hachette did this. Like, I think, first of all, if you're trying to keep a secret from Ronan Farrow. <laughs> Good luck. What are you doing with your life? <laughs> yeah, like, God, catch and kill was incredible. I drove around listening to it with my jaw on the floor, like just the stuff he had to get around and deal with and then uncover is, it's jaw dropping. And for Hachette to, like people at Hachette knew about this and they did not communicate it. And just thinking that it was going to like not come out or not have consequences, I think is a real failure of imagination. Uh, Like, I think Ronan Farrow's doing, I I, I think he's doing the right thing. I think this is a completely defensible thing. And really, it comes back to shining light on an ongoing problem in publishing, which is rewarding people whose reputations are now built on very bad or allegedly very bad behavior with giant book deals. Right. a couple weeks ago, I think we had the link in our agenda and we didn't quite get to it. Maris Kreisman wrote a great piece. I think it was at Vox. Yeah. At any rate, Maris Kreisman wrote a great piece about how 
publishing needs to acknowledge that it is participating in something very damaging by giving book deals to like would be whistleblowers and book deals to people who are inside the current administration. And those people are writing these big books rather than testifying, testifying, rather than actually blowing the whistle and taking action that changes things. And if publishing cares about contributing to culture in the way that publishing says it cares about contributing to culture, they need to acknowledge that responsibility and stop offering people millions of dollars to write these books so that those people go and just tell their story in the place they need to tell it so that like legal and legislative action takes place. And I think that this is similar. Like we saw it when Simon and Schuster was giving a book deal to Milo, like Mm -hmm. stop rewarding people with lots of money who have done great gross things just because there's interest in their story. Like this is where publishers motives, I think really become revealed. And we are reminded that publishing is a business. Mm -hmm. Um, It's also like a very pass the buck response um, from Michael Peach, who is what is his official title now? He's had a bunch of um, positions at Grand Central and at Hachette, but he's basically saying that they don't allow, we don't allow anyone's publishing program to interfere with anyone else's because Hachette publishes thousands of books a year. Each book has its own mission and our job as a publisher is to help the author achieve what they have set out to do in the creation of their book. So then asked about the mission of Mr. Allen's book, Peach said, Grand Central Publishing believes strongly that there's a large audience that wants to hear the story of Woody Allen's life as told by Woody Allen himself. That's what they've chosen to publish. And that's very like, we don't let the imprints interfere with each other kind of, I think is BS. Like you have a top line mission as a publishing house and you have top line values as a publishing house that should suffuse, they should be infused into every imprint's mission and values and those should all support each other. This is just gross profiting off of Ronan Farrow's work and also off of um, Woody Allen and thinking that there's not a conflict because they're at different imprints. It's just hand-waving. But also, we believe there's a large audience, so we've chosen to publish it is very telling. And that's Mm -hmm. about as clear as it gets. Like, they're publishing this book because there's money to be made. Yeah, I'm I'm not in love with anyone publishing Woody Allen's Mm -mm. memoir, frankly. He can self-publish it and sell it if he wants to. Agreed. I guess if they were going to do it and try to defend it, this is how I wouldn't defend it. It's like, you know what? He's a controversial figure. And... It's part of our mission to get information out. It's part of our business, and our mission is to get people out, let them tell their stories. The public can decide what they think. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't love that either, but at least it's not well, this, well, there's a bunch of people that want it, so we got to make it. That, that's yeah, not and how well, anything works. Also, anywhere. very pointedly, one of the reasons that this was successfully hidden from Ronan Farrow for as long as it was is that there was no fact-checking on Woody Allen's book. Great! Farrow was never contacted for a comment. <laughs> yeah about it and as we know like this is not uncommon in publishing the economics of publishing also don't support mm-hmm. thorough fact checking though Woody Allen probably does I and mean, memoirs if anyone, well I mean I don't you would think it would merit it yeah. but it does the they're not gonna do it like if they're not getting a comment from Ronan Farrow who are they no. fact checking who are they fact checking for Woody Allen's book and that just points back to another systemic issue of like publishing says we're interested in getting information out but the information's not always complete and accurate because there's not money to go fact check these big nonfiction books because we're paying a lot of money to do other things. Yeah. And even apart from publishing Alan's memoir at all, but what did they think was going to happen with Ronan Farrow? What what was the (laughs) good out? What was this going well look like? It's hard to imagine any situation that wasn't this. Frankly. And like Ronan Farrow, I was really impressed with both Catch and Kill and a bunch of 
interviews that I've listened to him give on different podcasts. And he talks about like that he wants, like he doesn't have an agenda. He wants to reveal what's happening in the world yeah. and to tell the story. And so he didn't pursue Me Too stories because of what had happened to his sister, but he was certainly inclined to listen to women in mm -hmm. a different way um, because of what had happened to his sister. So I don't think that there um, is like going to be a Ronan Farrow, like, expose about the inside of Grand Central, unless there's actually actually something to be uncovered mm -hmm. about the inside of Grand Central or about the inside of Hachette. But right, like, what did they think was going to happen when you have like one of the best investigative reporters I don't, I don't of our time writing a book and making a lot of money on it for your publishing house? Um, and he's connected to this story. Like, I can't imagine they thought it was going to be fine. I also think it's incredibly insulting to readers' intelligence and to Ronan Farrow's intelligence that that Hachette thinks this hand-waving is sufficient. That's kind of what I always come back to when publishers make statements like this. It's like, you know what? It's just insulting to me that you think I'm supposed to believe this BS about, well, imprints don't interfere with each other, so everything's fine. Go away. Yeah. And if you're if you're Ronan Farrow's editor, aren't you livid today? Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you want to edit the next Ronan Farrow book. You want that on your resume. Yeah, I don't even know that it's out in paperback yet. I, I don't no, know. No, it's not. I don't even not. know. Was he not going to support it? Is he? Uh, it's hard to. It's hard to. I mean, I guess he won't. Uh, I guess he won't. He's in the position of having to basically forego the marginal value of any existing relationship with them. Uh, you know, does he have a contract that he has to avoid? And could he be on the hook for something? I mean, mm -hmm. it would be stupid for Hachette to try to claw back something <laughs> at this point. But we've seen um, stupider thing happens before. Mm -hmm. Other, just wider book world news before we get to hero of the week and out of here. Um, the London Book Fair is canceled. I guess it's second to Frankfurt in the largest book events in the world, right? I mean, I don't know. Is London or BEA bigger? Do you have a sense of it? Oh, I think London is bigger. Yeah, I think it is too, but it's it's up there, right? London, Frankfurt, yeah. BEA. And I think it was actually the Bologna, Bologna that was canceled. Bologna, Bologna. Bologna, yes. I don't think that Frankfurt has been canceled yet. That's um, in the fall? Yeah, Bologna. I, I'm not sure if Bologna... Uh, that to me is not even the same thing, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. You could be right. <laughs> I just said bologna. I'm fresh back from Nashville where fried bologna sandwiches are a there thing. There you go. I would like um, to clarify that I know that bologna is not a place. <laughs> well, it's a place in our hearts. Um, so anyway, that stuff's happening. We've also seen just a parade of authors canceling their tours. Lori hulse Anderson mm -hmm. just canceled hers. Um, apparently... She has an underlying condition she's concerned about and traveling and several other things. I've seen authors canceling tours. Um, I think Jen, somewhere we were speculating, um, maybe it was Clint and I were just speculating about like, how does this, is this good for books because people can stay at home and read, but they don't want to go to events. You know, there, there's a thing, kind of a parasitic way in which the streaming services of the world probably stand to come out better than other businesses and a global pandemic because you can stay at home and do stuff. Hard to know um, if it has any effect on the actual business, but the meta business, the the B2B piece of publishing is already feeling um, the effects. I hope everyone out there listening is doing okay and taking care of yourselves uh, unsettled times. Um, let's do one last sponsor break and talk about good things. <laughs> Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. 
Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into the light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Scribner. Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman is a collection of seven stories in which characters pursue their obsessions on paths to glory and destruction, while all around them their worlds twist and warp, oscillating between reality and impossibility. On display throughout is Cotman's ability to reveal truths about the human experience, about things like friendship, love, betrayal, bitterness, all through whimsy, horror, and fantasy. Elegiac in tone, imaginative, and humorous in their execution, the character-driven stories in Weird Black Girls challenge, incite, and entertain. The author's last book was named one of NPR's Best Books of the Year and was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award, with reviews appearing in the New York Times, Wired, BuzzFeed, and Locus, among other publications. Definitely make sure to check out Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman. And thanks again to Scribner for sponsoring this episode. Okay, um, got two spots for good things. We need, um, well, let's see. This is actually We Need Diverse Books launches a new program, uh, and it is about a grant. I mean, We Need Diverse, we need, um, excuse me, Diverse Books to this point has been largely on kids' books, right, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's yes. what part of the story is here's, here. And they are launching a new grant for adult publishing. Um two new internship grants, and in a contender for Hero of the Week, Celeste Ng is bankrolling these. Mm-hmm. Heck of a job, Celeste Ng. Yes. Beginning in summer 2021, two interns will be awarded a 2500 grant to support their internship with the publishing house or literary agency. In addition to the $2,500 grant, each intern will receive a two-month public transportation stipend. The grants for interns in adult publishing will continue annually for a minimum of five years. Um, Aang statement. As a writer of color, as well as a mother of a young multiracial child, I'm grateful for all that We Need Diverse Books does to promote inclusion in publishing. Um, I've been wanting to find a way to give back for a long time. I'm proud to partner with We Need Diverse Book. We Need Diverse Books to make an internship in publishing feasible for more diverse applications through these grants. It's awesome. It's, it's awesome. It is. This is a problem that we shouldn't have to solve. Right. Like, you, you shouldn't have to be rich enough to work for free for a summer to get mm-hmm. your foot in the door in publishing. Um, this is such a generous way to do it. Great job, yeah, Celeste Ng, and directly affecting the pipeline, getting more people of color and people from diverse backgrounds. If you're interested in applying for that or finding out more about it, if you know someone that might be interested, I'll put a link in the show notes. But um, diversebooks.org, you can find out more yeah. if you're listening and don't want to click on the show notes. You want to do Hero of the Week for us? 
I do. I do want to do Hero of the Week. So this is a story from London about a 13-year-old boy named Callum Manning. He started an Instagram account recently to talk about the books that he loves, and he was bullied by his classmates for doing it. Uh, His older sister, who is... 24 um, shared it on Twitter like look how awful these kids are being my little brother made an Instagram reviewing and talking about books and kids at his new school have created a group chat calling him a creep slagging him off about it so she um, got a bunch of attention for this on Twitter and Callum has gotten at the time of this story which was written a couple days ago he had 230,000 Instagram followers who were following to support Mm. uh, his book account and encourage him that he's not a creep and this is wonderful and awesome so I think this is multiple heroes of the week here first of all Callum may your efforts to love books and share them with the world keep turning them pages succeed keep turning them good job big sis Mm -hmm. for supporting your brother and getting the word out about this and if you want to go give Callum an Instagram follow so that you can double tap and make that little red heart appear and let him know <laughs> that the bookish community is behind him. And we'll have a link in the show notes so that you can do that. So good job, good job. bookish people. All right. That's our episode this week. Um, we'll talk to you later, Rebecca. Thanks so much. Yeah. Have a good one. 